0: Hello everyone and welcome to the Deeper Waters Podcast. I'm Nick Peters, your host, seeking to bring you the very best in Christian scholarship and Paul Jackson. Today is no exception. Today we're talking about sexual abuse in the Me Too movement. And our guest today is Mary Demuth, an author, speaker and podcaster who is passionate about helping you live a restored life, a survival, neglect, and sexual abuse. Mary was gloriously rescued by Jesus when she was fifteen. She has spent her life healing from trauma so she can help others not feel so alone. She is a wife of Patrick and mom of three children. For more information, visit we2.org. And I like to let people know up front also that we could be dealing with some very personal matters that could be hard for some people to listen to. And I'd especially advise you if you got children, you might want to save this one for when you're alone. Just just to be safe. But for now, let's uh, go meet our guest. And, Mary, welcome to the Deeper Waters podcast.
1: Thank you for having me. It's great to be here.
0: Tell us your story.
1: Sure. So, um... I grew up in a home that I didn't want to duplicate later on, <laughs> just a difficult home. And I think a lot of people can relate to that. I think a lot of us look back on our lives and think of ways that maybe we would want things differently, or when we raise our kids, we'll do things differently. But, um, it's a child of three divorces and, uh, two of which were, um, before the age of six. So I um, had a lot of kind of trauma in my life at that time. Um, My father was a predatory person. My my biological father, uh, my mom, and my second father were uh, in the hippie era movement. (laughs) And so there was a lot of drugs and parties and unsafeness and things like that. So uh, I, for for a while there, I just, uh, as a kindergartner, I felt very, very unsafe. And I would go, to the to my elementary school which is a half day kindergarten and then i would go to a babysitter's house and uh, there wasn't a lot of there wasn't a lot of um grooming that went on it just happened so one day these two teenage boys knocked on the back door of my babysitter's house and asked if i could go out and play and uh, they took me out and they sexually abused me in the woods outside of our home, or the my neighborhood. And uh, they continued to do that for quite some time. And of course, they told me that if I told anyone, they would kill my parents. And they also said that... Um, They used a really bad word to describe what they were doing, and I was actually a really good little girl, and I didn't want to say that word. And so those two things coupled together caused me not to share with anybody what what was going on. So this went on for several months, and then they began to invite their friends to join in, and – Sometimes this happened in the woods um, in this very scary park near my elementary school. And sometimes it happened in their home, which turned out to be next door to the babysitter's house. While their mom was making, or one of the moms was making cookies in the kitchen, they would be molesting me. And something inside of me just broke. And I thought, I've got to tell somebody about this. <laughs> and weirdly enough, I th- I didn't feel comfortable telling my mom. I certainly didn't feel comfortable telling my stepdad and I didn't feel comfortable telling my biological father. So I don't know what I was thinking, but I thought, well, I'll tell this babysitter she'll help me. And of course she was the one pushing me out into the, you know, into the clutches of these men. And so I told her and she said, I will tell your mom, which is comforting to know. And as a five-year-old, you know, as a, a little kid, I believed that all adults told the truth. And that if she said that she would tell my mom that everything was good now, I didn't think anything about like, oh, I want them prosecuted or I want them to go to jail. I was just like, I want this to stop. And so when the next day came, I was kind of feeling relieved. But the knock came on the door again, and the babysitter sent me out again. And so in my mind, I thought that she did tell my mom, but my mom didn't care. And so at that point, I thought, okay, I will die. I just felt like I was going to die. And so the only thing I could think of doing was to sleep. So I would get home from half-day kindergarten, eat a very fast peanut butter and jelly sandwich, run to the ladies' bedroom, back bedroom, and pull the covers over my head and and just sleep and pretend to sleep for hours and hours and hours. And that actually did save me because the babysitter didn't want to be bothered by rousing me. And so for the last couple months of my kindergarten year, I was able to be free from the clutches of those neighborhood boys. Um, thankfully at the end of that year, we moved away to another city. And so I didn't have to deal with that anymore. And, um, and so I was really grateful for that, 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 I was set free. But the thing that happened was I felt like what those boys did to me was they marked me for further abuse because predatory people kept finding me. And I'm grateful to say I ran away from all of it. And it was probably seven to 10 incidences where I was approached and I was able to get out of each situation, um, and I'm grateful for that. But this, you can imagine, just all of the heartache um, that happened. So my mom remarried another man, and uh, things went on as usual. I'm a, I was an only child, so I didn't really have anyone to commiserate with or talk to about any of this. And at that point, my, my father was my hero because he was the one that would come every other weekend and pick me up and take me places and pay attention to me. So when I was in the fifth grade, I was sitting in math class and I there was a kind of a frantic intercom message that I could hear that said, will Mary come to the office right away? And I remember walking down the hallway and as I noticed the brick patterns on the wall, and I don't know why this struck me, but it did, I, I knew that my father was dead. And I got to the office and all the office ladies were crying. And my mom took me into her car and she told me, your dad is dead. And my first question was, even though I pretty much knew it was my biological father, I said, which one? And she said, your biological father. And um, my whole world fell apart at that point because he was really the only one that paid any sort of attention to me. And in retrospect, finding out it was not good attention. It was it was predatory attention. Um, but I didn't know that at the time. I just thought he loved me. And so – At this point, I lost kind of everything. We moved away, and I was in a new town, um, completely outcasted from the friend groups. Because by this time, I was in the sixth grade, and that's when I started considering why am I on this earth, and you know what? What's the point of me being here other than to be neglected or abused? And started um, to think about suicide, and had a lot of suicidal thoughts. Wrote suicidal poetry. And uh, in my in the eighth grade, um, was barely hanging on, there was a counselor in my junior high who who just he just took notice of me, and he basically saved me um, not to the Lord, but just saved me by listening to me and giving me space to share some of my sadness. At that time, I had really connected to my third father because I no longer had my biological father, and I found out that that they were getting a divorce, and so of course the whole thing fell apart at that point. So um, by the time I was in the ninth grade, I was I was really broken, really searching. I had been to a church one time up until that point, and. Um, what had happened was my, for some reason, my grandmother said I needed to be baptized, which was strange because she never went to church. And so we went to this Episcopal, Episcopal church, and the rule was you had to go to Sunday school one day in order to get baptized. So I went to Sunday school, and we created the walls of Jericho, and we kicked them over, which I thought was interesting. And um, I remember getting sprinkled. Uh, I had no idea what it meant. And uh I remember asking my mom, can I please go back there? So it was just something about it. I just wanted to church. And of course that didn't happen. And I remember the um party that we had afterwards, my uncle came up to me and said, Are you aren't you really glad that you're not going to hell anymore? And I said, Yeah but I didn't know about that. So, <laughs> so I was literally, I just didn't know anything about anything. I didn't know that Jesus was connected to Christmas or Easter. I, I literally knew nothing other than a swear word. And so in the ninth grade, I was invited to go to Young Life by a friend of mine, and it's a ministry to high school students. And that's when I started hearing the gospel for the first time. And every single time I heard about Jesus Christ, my heart just leapt out of my chest. And I just, I was hungering. I wanted to know more and more. I had this insatiable need to know about Jesus. And by the end of that school year, I remember one of the sermons or one of the little talks was when Jesus calmed the sea and the disciples asked the question, who is this, that the wind and the seas obey him. And that question just circled through my mind that whole summer of my freshman year of high school. And when uh, my sophomore year came, I went to a weekend Young Life camp where the whole gospel was spelled out. Life, death, resurrection of Jesus Christ. What does it mean to follow him? And I remember going outside and it was dark. It was this is in the Pacific Northwest. And I remember sitting under a tree, which was kind of symbolic because all of the violation that had happened to me as a five year old happened in the woods under a very great big evergreen tree. So here I am kind of full circle, sitting under this tree and asking Jesus to please come into my life. And at that point, it was more of a desperation of, I need to know I have a daddy that's not going to leave, because I'd had all that situation, you know, with all these fathers leaving. And um, and so that's how I met Christ. And that also began a very long, as you can imagine, a very long healing journey from The trauma that happened throughout my childhood. And uh, I wish I could say, oh, I'm 100% healed now, but I'm not. I'm still walking through healing. Mm -hmm. Um, But that certainly inaugurated the beginning of that healing journey. And so that's how I, that's kind of my upbringing and how I met Christ.
0: Mm -hmm. My wife has gone through some abuse as well, so I get it to an extent. um, It wasn't ...at the hands of family, and it certainly wasn't to the extent that you've gone through, but she's been through it. <laughs> but at the same time, sometimes we do have these concerns, because we we do hear about these stories, but then we've all heard stories like, say, the Duke lacrosse players that were accused of rape, and the, uh, the, a lot of us were very suspicious about Brett Kavanaugh, and my, my wife and I know some people <laughs> in the anime industry have been accused of things, And we have to wonder, because we know there are real victims out there, like yourself and my wife, but every time someone comes up with a story that really isn't true, it really does damage to everyone who has a true story, doesn't it?
1: Sure. Those are pretty rare, but they do make the news. And you're right. When those come out, it does – it causes everyone to doubt everything. and. Um, one of the best things that we can do for someone in an interpersonal situation, I'm not talking a public situation, but one-on-one when someone comes to us and shares a difficult story, obviously the best thing that we can do is to listen to them and to err on the side of belief in that small circle of two. Um, of course, I mean, that's, that's just how it is, but you're right. I mean, I think when you have those kinds of situations, it, there, you know, this is a broken, fallen world, and there's people that don't tell the truth sometimes, and uh, a lot of people that don't tell the truth sometimes. So, yes, I would agree with you that that does damage what's, you know, those who really do have a story um, still need to be believed and listened to.
0: And something that you've talked about in this book is, sadly, the church usually isn't as supportive as it should be, is it?
1: Yeah, it depends on. It really, it's situational. So, um, one of the reasons I wrote this book was that I'm just I love the church, and the lion's share of my healing came in church, and so I don't have a negative vendetta against the church. Um, when I was in college, I shared my, I began to share my story, which was really helpful just to get it out of myself, and thankfully shared it with Christ followers, and so many of them just rallied around me, laid their hands on me and prayed for me and just loved me and listened. And so much healing, so much healing happened because of that. But as an advocate um, in this circle, of course I've run into people where that has not been the case. And especially if it happens within the body of the church, um, whether it be a volunteer or just a, a member or someone in leadership of the church, what tends to happen, and this doesn't always happen, but it tends to happen, is that you err on the side—excuse <coughs> me—on the side of belief of um, the one in power, and so we see a lot of like reputation protection or reputation management versus kind of taking it to the proper authorities and letting them sort it out. Um, so yes, I think the church has some a, a little ways to go in in learning how to to deal with these kinds of allegations that are within the church. But I think on the whole, most people in the church want to be an empathetic listener to those who are hurting. And so part of the reason in writing the book was just to remind us of that, that this is really where the work begins is in those one-on-ones and those conversations where we're finally heard and prayed for and loved.
0: Yeah. I know it some of uh... the, because you mentioned in the book, and I'm glad to see that you went after him to an extent and that the church is waking up to him, like Paige Patterson for instance, and what happened with him. I follow that story very closely, and I, I just, I don't even know what to say about that kind of thing, what happened.
1: Right, and I had the opportunity to go to the SBC convention this year, and also the Caring Well conference for the ERLC and uh, got to know some of the people behind the scenes um, in that story. And, yeah, it's, it's a difficult story for sure. And, um, you know, we, I wish that, you know, we had some sort of like X-ray vision of knowing everything that always happens. Of course, we can do public records. So anything that's public record is pretty easy to discern. But, um, but yeah, it, it, I think we can do better as a church in um, the way that we treat half of our, well, a little bit more than half of our congregations are women. And so um, I think there was some lessons there the church could learn on how to uh, empower and listen to and love those who
0: are also following Christ. Mm -hmm. And, you know, it's not just women who suffer from this, Right. And I I don't just mean in fact being abused. I mean yeah, men are abused sometimes yes. too. But I'm also thinking, since many of us guys, I'd say most of the guys you meet, are pretty much good guys. They they want to to just live their lives. Want to love the, the women that are in their lives. And I know in my wife's when she's been abused. That it's very difficult for her sometimes to accept that love from me because it's always viewed with suspicion. And as for single guys, I know a number of single guys who are practically scared to ask any woman out to say she's attractive even because they don't want to get hit with a lawsuit and claim sexual harassment.
1: Right. So we have a lot of things going on in what you just said. And I think one of the things is um, the reason that my husband and I wrote a book together. It's called Not Marked, Finding Hope and Healing After Sexual Abuse, is that it was not his story. Um, He doesn't have that story of sexual abuse, but I did. And so we did suffer in our marriage because of that same thing that you just mentioned. Um, Just this um, suspicion, fear, triggers, uh, recoiling um, those things are really common and they happen. And I, I'm finding that people in marriage are not talking about this very much. So when I am in a group, had the opportunity at the ERLC to talk about this really frankly and say, hey, we really need to talk about how um, survivors in marriage are having a hard time and the spouse of the survivor, whether it's a female or male, are having a really hard time because their intent is positive, but it's being reinterpreted as negative. And so there's a lot of good talking and counseling that needs to happen in marital relationships. My husband and I have learned that Marriage can be a really great place of healing for a sexual abuse victim, or it can be a a terrible place for a sexual abuse victim. And it just really depends on the openness of the two, the willingness of both to talk about their issues and um, to get some of that scary stuff inside out in the open, um, whether it be between the two of you know, the two people or, um, in front of a counselor or a mentor coach of some, of some sort. Um, but yeah, I I would agree that many people are walking wounded today and there's a lot of fear around what is healthy and what is not healthy, but particularly I I can't speak to dating world since I'm not in it anymore. And I haven't been for a really long time, but at least in the marital world, I can say it is work throughable and, um, and it's important that we begin to talk about it. Cause I think two things happen in marriage sometimes when you have someone that has that is a survivor one is that they just simply shut down and can't have sex they just can't do it so i've i've talked to and and emailed several spouses that are in that realm the other side would be that they are trying desperately to do okay in that area but they just are blocked somehow and it's not that they want to be blocked, but they are. And so those are kind of the two. Um, there's, there could be a third route as well, and that would be the promiscuity route where uh, they just um, a lot of – there's one of the reactions of sexual abuse is promiscuity, and so that could be a third route as well. So those are the kind of things that I'm seeing in talking to people around the nation um, and how it damages the marital relationship.
0: Yeah, I'd like to remind everyone you're listening to Deeper Waters Podcast, you have got Mary DeMuff on talking about her book, We Too. But if you're here next week, we're going to be looking at Christ and culture again. I'm going to have Fair Talon on from HBU. We're going to be talking about Christianity and the culture. Uh, for now, let's get back to uh, Mary DeMuff talking about her book, We Too. Yeah, and it, it really is a shame because sex is meant to be a gift to married couples, And, I mean, I, I know that for those of us who are good guys, the greatest joy we have from our marriages, it's not what our wife does for us. It's what we do for her. And we, we want to give her all the joy that we have without any barriers up there. But thanks to evil people, sometimes that doesn't happen that right way.
1: Right. And, um, and so it's, it, it, it does feel like, uh, I know that one of the things that my husband dealt with in, in this realm was that he was mad, uh, at, at what happened to me and who did that to me, because that was a, that was a, a stealing, a thievery, if you will, of, um, of my innocence, of course. And, um, and so, yes, that's a very normal thing to feel. And, and I think the longer that we have worked on it and the longer we married, it gets better and better and better. And so I, I encouraged married couples to continue to work toward healing in this area because it is worth it and it does get better. But, um but it doesn't happen in silence and it doesn't happen in just not talking about it. And so I would encourage folks to, even if it's, it's the most excruciating thing to talk about, but even if they feel like they can't just find a way to begin to talk about it, because that's where that, um, that's where that camaraderie returns to the marriage. And I think for us too, it's, one of the things that really helped me was I always felt like I was the broken one in the in the marriage. I was the one that never did anything right, or I was just you know I had all these problems or whatever, and the camaraderie returned to our marriage when he began to look at his own issues, which were unrelated to mine and and I finally felt like, okay, we're in this together. we both have problems. what hundred percent of humans on the earth have problems, and now we're both looking at them going, okay, we can own our own stuff, and we can." Uh, work on these. But I didn't feel alone anymore. I wasn't just the broken one that needed to be fixed. We both were broken people needing to be fixed. And so that and that both caused us to turn to Jesus to be that healer for both of us.
0: Honestly, you sound so much like what I hear, you know, at home when my own wife tells me that she can't be fixed and things like that. I just say, hey, that doesn't even make sense to me because you're not A person to be fixed or something like that a problem, as it were, you're a person to be loved and cherished. And to me the not being fixed, it doesn't make sense. Right. Right. And I think, you know, continuing
1: that cherished language of just loving well the person that you're with and finding out what makes them feel loved, you know, that good old five love languages that we've learned about is really important too. you know, like you can communicate it really well in your own love language, but if it's not in hers, she may not hear it. So, and vice versa, like I can, I could write notes to my husband till the cows come home, but it doesn't really matter. But if I hold his hand matters. So yeah, you know, everyone's different.
0: Yeah, something also I think worth pointing out, because uh, I've read two books here, on, kind of relayed here. You're both saying different things, but at the same time I think you'd also agree. After, after I read your book, I also read Mary Eberstadt's book, Primer Screams, and I'm working on getting her on the show sometime, listeners, about how the sexual revolution changed us so much. And one thing she said is, I mean, you said in your book, you know, we don't need to blame the victims. And to an extent, definitely, that's true. But at the same time, she said, Hey, but women, we need to wise up a little bit here because some women sadly aren't used to having men in their lives are actually protect her instead. And she just says, Women, if a guy asked you to go up to his hotel room alone, what do you think he's really asking for? So my my question at this point is, I mean, do you think you two would kind of walk in lockstep on this one? You know, you shouldn't blame the victim, but women have seen them also. Be very careful around men you don't know.
1: Oh, obviously. And, um, there's, of course, there's the whole idea of having wisdom and, and also, you know, making wise, those kinds of wise choices and things like that. So yes, of course, um, we live in a very interesting sexually charged world and i do lament the fact that such the sexual ethic is no longer really talked about it's as if it's been thrown out the window and you know i think uh, on the one hand i think about like you get really harsh and and i could think about well before i got married i was I I wasn't, I was a virgin for all intents and purposes, other than being raped at five. Um, If we got really technical, we could say that I wasn't, (laughs) but I was. And, and so, but today it seems like so few people have any sort of sexual ethic and they don't think about what the Bible says about premarital sex and extramarital sex and all of that kind of stuff. And so, yes, I would agree that throughout the history of the sexual revolution that we have we have let the culture dictate our morals and we have not let the word of god dictate our morals
0: Yeah, I got things so much based on what you said, uh, just, when I got married, I was just two months away from turning 30 years old. My wife was one month away from turning 20 years old, so, yes, I robbed that freighter big time, but, at the same time, we were both virgins. I waited, so I tell guys, yes, it's possible, at the same time, we definitely need to improve our message when it comes to sexual ethics. I was, uh, my wife's interest in joining the Orthodox Church, and I was on the page of a priest this morning, and he wrote, he shared this article about how when a country's sexual morality starts going down the window, it's on its way out as a culture. And, uh, when someone said, All we usually get for sexual ethics in the churches was a list of rulers, and that was it. And I relate this story that I always relate about being in Bible college, a single college guy, and going to my church at a time where they had the service going on about the silver ring thing. I support the intent, but I don't think the message works. And the associate pastor gets up and starts talking. He barely pays lip service to joy in marriage. And then goes on and says, if you have sex before you get married, it is going to be for selfish reasons. I'm thinking, okay, I agree. And he says, But think about this. Think about the shame you're feeling your wedding night. You could get pregnant. You could get an STD. What will you have to tell your future spouse and He's going on and on with something. Um those sound like selfish reasons to me too. And as I I close off now I tell the story I say, I was seeing in my audience and I was getting bored. And if you are talking about sex and the college age guys in the audience and he's getting bored you're doing something wrong
1: right so it i think you're right in terms of um we haven't talked much about the the beauty of marriage and the power of that um to becoming one and I also think there's actually really good research out there about uh, that's like sociological research about the power of monogamy. And, you know, you see also a lot of these um, studies about longevity studies that talk about people who are in long-term marriages or are, and especially who have religious affiliation do a lot better than those who don't. And, and so we do need to be able to, to herald um, this as something really positive and i also like to think about too like what what damage it does to the soul to be promiscuous and to sleep around and and i don't say this in a you know hyper judgmental way at all i think i'm thinking about it from a pastoral perspective and a shepherding perspective of if you're giving your heart away and you're being joined to so many different people what that does and how it fragments your heart and how it harms your um, how it harms the way you view the world, how it harms your soul, how it fractures you. And so if our job is to be have this life abundant under Jesus Christ and what he's done for us, then um, giving our hearts away and our bodies away to multiple people cannot be good for our soul. And so, yes, of course, we talk about morality. Yes, of course, we talk about a biblical sexual ethic, but we also can point to research about what it, it does to us and I think we're, we're seeing people kind of come to that realization socio you know sociologically that this isn't a good thing for people and so this hookup culture is is not good yeah. for the souls of each other.
0: Yeah I uh, wanted to say something about the power of monogamy and the power of marriage, which is the power of healing as well that's Adam. Something my wife and I have in common is we both have Asperger's. She has BPD as well, and we're working with that. But we both have Asperger's, so I marry her. Like I said, I was two months away from 30, so I'm, I'm, I'm talking about I am 30. And if you know anything about Asperger's, one of the things we usually have on there is we tend to have very finicky diets. My parents had tried for years to get me to change my diet. It wasn't happening. <laughs> They asked my friends to do things to convince me wasn't happening. Talk to professionals, student teachers who could do wasn't happening. Refusing to budge whatsoever. Married less than a year and my wife doesn't she doesn't even have to try. She doesn't have to coerce, she doesn't have to persuade. Just being with her made me want to be better. And there's still a ways to go, but my wife has done more for my good than aside from Jesus Christ and any other person has, I think.
1: <laughs> well, I love that. And I think, you know, as you talked about that power of monogamy and the power of a marriage of, of one who loves you well. And I think that's, as we look go, and we go all the way back to the Garden of Eden and how God created the heavens and the earth and he places man and woman in the garden. And uh, there was a, a an unhindered joy that was happening in that garden. And God created, he said, it's not good that they are alone. And so he creates... Woman from man, and the two become one. And there's something very powerful about that. And and what I see in that, when I look at that particular story, I think about our triune God, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, and how they they themselves exist in relationship. And and so they realize as they're creating the cosmos and they're creating human beings that that they want to have that they want to have let humans have that same kind of interaction that they have within the Godhead. And, and so then we have this, the story of these people, you know, having this, uh, marriage. And of course then sin enters the world and everything goes off the rails. But, but I think that ideal of, we were made for community. We were made to be loved. We were made to love. And like you said, in your story, which I think is really poignant, um, someone loving us that way will cause us to look at our lives. It'll cause us to think about our sanctification journey in a different way. I'm not just healing for the sake of healing. Um, I'm healing for the sake of another. And that's one of the things that I tell my audiences, especially when I speak to women, because I think a lot of women believe that it's selfish to heal or it just takes too much time or it's going to be like narcissistic if I heal or go talk to someone about my problem or whatever. And so then I'll ask this question, um, well, if you can't heal for you, can you heal for your loved one? And the story that I tell people is this um, woman came up to me after one of my talks, and she was probably in her 50s, and her mom was in her 70s. And she said, yeah, my mom finally just said that she had been abused when she was a child. And And so then she talked a little bit about how it had affected her mom's life her whole life until she finally got it out in her 70s. And I looked at her and I said, would it have been a gift to you if your mom had chased her healing earlier and she burst into tears? And so what I say to audiences is, is if you can't heal for yourself, heal for the sake of those who love you because they need healed you. Your children need a healed mom. Your, your husband needs a healed wife. Your friend needs a healed friend. Your uncle needs, you know, a healed aunt. Uh, these are all things that, um, that we do for Uh, We, we ultimately heal, obviously, but it also um, blesses my, my relationship with my kids, my relationship with my husband, even my relationship with my parents. And so, uh, or my mom, who's still living. So I think there's something to be said about the power of healing within a relationship.
0: Hi, this is Jay Warner Wallace. If you're a fan of clear thinking and of being able to make the case for what you believe as a Christian, to be able to make the case for truth, well, this is a great place to learn how to do that. This is Deeper Waters with Nick Peters. Nick has a number of great guests on his show, and I've been
1: just honored to be one of those guests. So if you want to carve some time to be able to become a better Christian case maker, this is the way to do it, right here at Deeper Waters with Nick Peters.
0: I can remind everyone at this point you're seeing the Deeper Waters podcast. We're here for an hour today, and everything we do here is supported by listeners like you. And if you want to help us, go to our website, com. There's a link on the side. Help support the work of Deeper Waters Christian Ministries. And if you click that link, you'll get taken to the ministry of Risen Jesus. You're still at the right place. Those are my in-laws, Mike and Debbie Lacona. You make your donation, you get in touch with me, or Ali or Mike, or Debbie, and say, Hey, I made a donation. I want to go to Nick Peters. I want to go to Deeper Waters. We will give that donation. It will be tax-deductible. <laughs> and uh, you can also buy some ebooks. I'm currently working on my response to Outgrowing God right now. The other one I've written on my own is A Creed for the Ages, the Apostles' Creed and today's Christian, Co-written, God and Natural Disasters, mm-hmm from bars project, a very big one right now. Defining Inerrancy, Contextualizing Inerrancy, Groundlets, and uh, Christian Answers of Rich Generation's Questions. And, folks, if you can't do any of these, please least go on iTunes and leave a positive review of a Deeper Waters podcast. i really love to see them. Now, Mary, do you have an organization or a charity you'd like to see people donate to?
1: Um, actually, I, I can't think of one right now, but... Um But I am grateful for the work of so many people who are helping in the advocacy space. Um, I know that the Southern Baptist Convention, the, the Caring Well Conference, was a really interesting conference. And what I thought about when I was looking around, I believe there were 1,800 people there at the time. And I looked around and I thought, I think this is the largest gathering in the history of the church about this issue ever Ever, ever, and that was, I I got teary, you know, when I looked around that room, thinking, "Wow, there's 1,800 people talking about how we can be whole in this area," and so um, I was really grateful and gratified by that.
0: Now, let, let's talk about what the church can be doing here, then, uh, as we get into the final segments of our show here today. Because I mean, one of the things that I think is often a misconception is the idea that, I mean, my own wife says to me, you can, you don't understand what it's like being like BPD or having abuse in your past, things like that, and I have to say every time, you're right, hon, I don't. I don't think I can ever really understand that just like I don't think she can ever understand what it's like to be a man. But, understanding it isn't, I mean, I should try to understand as much as I can, but it's not necessary to be there and be a healer, is it?
1: Right, and it it's. I think where we come to this place of, um, kind of where I, I land the plane is is being able to have those kinds of conversations that help each other let each other in on what it is we're thinking and feeling because I, I'm not a good mind reader and my husband's not a good mind reader either and so if it's left unsaid and if I say well you just don't understand but I don't give him an explanation as to what I'm really feeling, then he can't, he, he, he can only speculate. And so having those kind of open kind of conversations where we're willing to share what our experience is like, um, the book, to kill a mockingbird Atticus Finch says, you don't really know a person until you walk around in their shoes a bit. And I think that's, that's part of learning the power of empathy, but it's also uh, really important about communication of what it's like.
0: Yeah, one of the things I'm thinking could also be helpful ...for churches to keep in mind... ...is that many women who have been abused sexually... ...they might be very hesitant to go to a pastor... ...because many pastors are men... ...and the first person they talk to... ...aside from perhaps her husband or father or some family member... ...they don't want that to be a man... ...so you think it could help churches if they set up... ...a woman... Uh, ...a woman trained in counseling that... ...all women could go to for these kinds of issues...
1: Sure. I don't think that could hurt. I think that'd be really welcoming. Um, I know for me, as someone who's written a couple books on this subject, I get a lot of people coming to me with their first disclosures and uh, there's that safety in knowing, okay, she's, she's, first of all, it's my story. So they know I'm going to understand, but yes, I can see having the same sex um, person to talk to is, is comforting. And, and have, having that kind of, yes, I've walked in those shoes before. So I would, yes, I highly advise that churches um, consider having like some sort of Stevens ministry. I know that that's one that comes off the top of my head. My church has one of those where there's this people, men and women trained to be empathetic listeners to people going through life struggles. And the nice thing about that is it's a ministry and people don't have to, there's not an economic exchange for it. It's just a mentoring relationship. And I know for me, one of the barriers to some of my healing was just economics. I couldn't afford it. We couldn't afford to send me to counseling. And so it forced me to go to a lot of different places. And I read a lot of books. Uh, some of my counseling came at, on the heels of just reading good books um, and just being desperate and asking people to pray for me. And finally, when I did get actual counseling in my 30s, um uh, I remember sitting across from the counselor and telling her my story. And after a couple of sessions in, she said, "Okay, so how many years of counseling have you had?" And I said, "Oh, this you're my first counselor. I haven't had a counsel, any counseling really." And she said, "No, come on, don't tell me a joke." <laughs> I'm like, "I'm not telling you a joke. I actually not had counseling." And she said, "Well, you you're you're healed as as much as someone who's had years of therapy." And so. I'm not saying that to dismiss therapy. I think therapy can be really amazing, but it also talks, it um, testifies to the fact that there, God has different ways of healing us in different capacities. And I, I was able to have a significant amount of healing outside of therapy. And then I also had some significant amount of healing within therapy. So it just kind of depends on your own journey. um, But having someone in your congregation who has that empathetic training is really powerful.
0: Yeah, I think another great organization is Celebrate Recovery.
1: Yes, yes.
0: My my wife and I both attend Celebrate Recovery. And look, I'm I'm a guy. I don't know much about this. And being on the spectrum, empathy is not always my strongest suit. So (laughs) what are some other things that churches can keep in mind to help with healing?
1: Well, I do agree that... um... Having those kinds of ministries like celebrate recovery and and those kinds of um, places where people can be broken, I think is so important. Um, you're in the South, I'm in the South. I think one of the problems that we have in the South is that there is this kind of pressure to go to church and therefore there can be this pressure of appearing to have everything together and walk through the doors of your church. <laughs> you know it's all about how you look and how you appear and how you carry yourself and i think um a pastor who's longing to see a healthier emotionally healthy community is going to do everything that he can to um to kind of normalize brokenness because we've all been beaten up by the world in in various ways we've all been harmed in various ways we have harmed ourselves and ourselves in various ways and so To kind of pull away the veneer and make the church a safe place for being honest is super helpful. And that's why I love Celebrate Recovery, because when people come there, they just kind of drop the pretense. And then you realize that everyone who appeared to have their lives together actually didn't. But that that was was okay because you realized, hey, we're all in this boat together. I think that's the beauty of the body of Christ, too, because we we can't I don't think people can heal in isolation. We need each other to heal, whether you have strong empathy or no empathy. we as you mentioned with the story of your wife, you needed her, and she needs you and and the two of you together, um, as the scripture says, two are better than one, and so um, anytime we can kind of foster as the church these kind of small spaces where vulnerability uh, can be um, can be cultivated and and to, in a tender way too, because we have to be super careful about. If we're asking people to be vulnerable, we also have to have high integrity and high trustworthiness as well.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, I I I thoroughly agree if I can think. I, I, my, my own wife's going through this again with how she's scared to go to church when she's in a place of pain. She says, people are going to see me crying. I don't want them to be asking why and judging. I said, look, hon, if you go to church and someone's bothered, because they see you crying and they're thinking about you. They've got bigger problems yeah. at that point. Because they're not supposed to be thinking about you. They're supposed to be thinking about Christ at that point. But it, it's entirely true. We, we've developed this kind of attitude. I mean, people are, people for most broken people love to come to Jesus. But if broken people are scared to come to us, we're not really giving off. A presence that Jesus gave off.
1: Right. I think I think that's really beautifully stated. And I think when I speak to audiences or when I'm one-on-one with friends, I one of the things I love to talk about is um 2 Corinthians 12, 9 and 10, that his power is made perfect on our weakness. And so, you know, I think a lot of people that have difficult stories, and a lot of us do, um, we can see that story as a detriment. Like, oh, I have this terrible story, and it's marked me for life. And, and I actually now see my story um, as a benefit because I know my weakness, and I am well acquainted with it. And that is what caused me to come to Christ. And had I been strong and had I had everything go my way, I would have had no need for Christ. And I would not have experienced the beauty of his strength in my weakness if I didn't realize my weakness. And so I tell people, you you know, your weakness is your superpower. It's what compels you into the arm of Jesus. And we have to look at the narratives of the gospels where Jesus constantly is kind-hearted to those who are broken and on the outcast society. And he has his harshest words for those who appear to have it all together. And so it's weird to me that we go to church and it's like we're trying to be like the people that have it all together, and those are the ones that Jesus had the harshest words for. So I think we've got some things upside down and backwards.
0: I tell my wife, I was kind of thinking all the time, going along with what you said, is that what happens to you ...isn't always good. Everyone would have to acknowledge sure. that. But the thing is, if you're a Christian... ...the good news is, God promises... ...if you love the Lord... ...everything that happens to you... ...will be used not just for His good... ...but for your good as well. I mean, as I say... it. ...my wife and I both love playing games. it. This is kind of like the ultimate cheat code. No matter what happens... ...you're going to win in the end if you just love God.
1: Right. And it's, it's important that we, we look at the, the storytelling God that we serve. He is weaving together everybody's stories. And, you know, there are some, there are some empty threads of my story that I don't understand, and they're not going to be made sense of here on earth. I will understand them on the other side. And that's okay, that keeps me longing for heaven. But as I look back on my story, I can see that there has been so much good that has come from so much evil. And that is not to my glory. That is to the glory of Jesus Christ, who's healed me and walked me along this journey. I'm so grateful for him. Um, He does work all things together for the good and the good of his plan. Um, And that's how I see it. I'm healed so that I can be part of someone else's healing journey. I am set free so that I can be um, part of emancipating others who are not set free yet. There's a so what to my story, and I think that's where um, one of the things that's kind of helped me is to look at past, present, and future. I could say things like, I was neglected, and that was true, but then I can look at the present tense, and I could look at the Word of God and say, I was neglected that I'm not neglected by the God of the universe. I am cherished and loved by him. And then I can write a future statement. Because I am loved by the God of the universe and not neglected, I can help other people in the world who feel neglected realize that they're not alone and that Jesus loves them. And so that simple exercise of doing the, um, I was, I am, I will be, uh, is really powerful to sense of some of the terrible things that have gone on in the past um god does use it and it's usually um he uses that pain in your ministry in the future
0: mm-hmm. so, what would you say to the woman who's listening who's gone through abuse and who thinks healing is kind of like a hopeless cause at this point
1: Well, I would if I was sitting across from her and we were having coffee together, tea. um, I would say, "Do you mind pray for you?" Because uh, I I really believe in the power of prayer. Because I don't believe that um, healing is impossible. Because of Jesus Christ, nothing's impossible. And so I I would counsel that there is possibility there. uh, that doesn't negate the pain of the person. It doesn't negate the terrible journey that they may have been on. Um, and again, I would say, uh, one of the things I tell folks is an untold story never heals. And so I would ask, um, that they would begin to let out their story to someone who's safe and to process that story with someone who's kind-hearted and empathetic and sweet. And, um, that that will begin the journey and then to begin to trust the Holy Spirit to lead you to the right people, the right things, the right book, whatever um, it is to go to the next step. I think a lot of times when we look at the healing journey, we look at zero to a million and we think, well, I want to get to a million. And the healing journey is like step, then the next step, then the next step, then the next step. I think we want it all at once. We want to be like the blind people who are healed by Jesus immediately. Then we see the other ones that had to go wash their eyes and then they were healed. They came back and said, I see people like trees walking around and Jesus healed them again, you know, to the full fullness. Sometimes we're healed in an instant. Most of the time we're walking out our healing as we walk out the sanctification journey.
0: And what would you say to the person who's with the one being here, in this case especially to the husbands who are wondering what's going on here. I want to love my wife and yet there seem to be a thousand and one barriers in the way. How do I handle it?
1: Yeah, a couple of things come to mind is obviously um, to get on your knees and to pray for your spouse and to ask God for supernatural insight into what they're going through and ask for ways to serve your spouse um, that will be a benefit to him or her, and um, and then also if it becomes a barrier for for the spouse and their relationship with God to find godly counsel, um, whether it be you know counseling services or a mentor at church or something like that, because it's a hard thing to bear, um, especially if you have if you're walking with someone who isn't healing and who doesn't seem to want to heal then all you can you can't control their healing journey but you can control your own response to it and so getting the kind of counsel and wisdom that you need is really helpful too
0: hey, well, mary i really need to be wrapping things up here we've almost got our time here do you have a blog website and email where people can get in touch with you if they want to find out more and especially if they want healing
1: yeah, so I have a website called we2.org, and if people go to we2.org/slash 21 days, they'll receive a three-week free um, uh, email sequence. Uh, it'll come every day in their inbox for 21 days. And these are all the best things that I've learned about the healing journey, and that's absolutely free. If you're wanting some sexual abuse resources, you can go to we2.org/slash pastors and get a PDF of all of the resources all around the world for sexual abuse victims. And I've curated that list myself. It's about 30 pages long with links. Mm -hmm. Um, I also have a podcast called Pray Every Day. People can find it at prayeveryday.show and this is a 365, next year it'll be 366 day podcast. Five minutes where I read scripture and then pray that scripture for my audience. And currently we're reading through the book of Romans and after Romans we'll go through Micah and after Micah we'll go through the whole book of Matthew. So I read chunks of scripture, and then I pray. It's only five minutes long, and you can find it on your Alexa device, too, which is kind of fun. And so that's where they can find me. My normal personal site is marriedmuth.com.
0: Do you have any final words you'd like to leave today for a Deeper Waters audience?
1: You know, um, there's always hope, and there have been times in my life where I thought, I am never going to get over this. This is too big of a mountain. I can't climb it. And yet, um, there's been deeper levels and higher climbing that happened after that despair. And that's where I would say, remember that your weakness is your superpower and that that's actually the most beautiful place to be because that's where Jesus does his best work.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, I'd like to thank you for coming on. Hope we we'll see you back here again sometime.
1: Thank you so much.
0: I appreciate it. Mike Miner went next week. We're going to have Phil Talon on talking about Christ and culture and possibly beauty to some extent. For now, I'm Nick Peters, I'm signing off, and I affirm the virgin birth.